So in the shorter Sukhapati Vyuha Sutra, uh, which is only six pages long, um, the first half is the Buddha telling Ananda, no, Shariputra, one of those two, Shariputra I think, telling them, <coughs> in describing the Pure Land in much the same way that you heard yesterday. But then after that he says this to him, He says, now, Shariputra, it's Shariputra, sentient beings should <coughs> set their minds on rebirth in that Buddha field. Why? Because they will meet, there, they will meet persons like themselves who practice the good. That's the only reason he gives for rebirth in the Pure Land. <laughs> he doesn't say, because it's a lovely place and because you get these fantastic jewel trees and you get these lotus ponds you can go into in the heat and it's really beautiful and fantastic and you'll gain enlightenment he says because there you'll meet people who practice the good yeah that's the only reason he gives for rebirth in the pure land so um <coughs> the, the the pure land sukhavati is a symbol and all symbols have more than one meaning so yesterday I was talking about a certain way of understanding the Pure Land, a certain meaning. But today I'm going to talk about another way, which is Sukhavati symbolizes Sangha at its best. That's what it really is, it's Sangha at its best. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, but before I do that, uh, it's, let's go back to what he says. Now shall we put a sentient being should set their minds on rebirth in the Pure Land. Now, I've got another translation. Actually, the other translation I have is by our Mitra, who lives in Oslo, David Welsh. Scottish Mitra, with the name Welsh, <laughs> who lives in Oslo. <laughs> and he's a linguist. And he does Sanskrit, Chinese, and Tibetan. And he's translated this first sutra and uh, that, that word set your mind on is pranidhana and uh, David translates pranidhana as heartfelt desire mm. heartfelt desire which is different isn't it mm. heartfelt desire and um, <coughs> this is interesting because uh, we so often think that the Buddha was against desire you know? he was he did say that craving leads to suffering, but not all, not all desire is craving. There are some desires which are very desirable to have. And uh, desire for rebirth in the Pure Land is one of those. Of course, rebirth in the Pure Land is um, a naive realism. Yeah, uh, and that's right, isn't it? Naive realism. To re really believe there's, there's a Pure Land you can be reborn into. But if we if we take that more critically and understand rebirth in the Pure Land as enlightenment and being with the Sangha, what that means is we need a heartfelt desire. Desire is really, really important. And uh, Vijayamala was talking about that yesterday at the beginning of the puja, about this heartfelt desire that we need. If we really want to make spiritual progress, we need that heartfelt desire. Um, so, um, I'm going to talk about uh, the beings in the Pure Land. They are, they are described pretty comprehensively, actually. And this is... Uh, this, hmm? Do they have some windows? windows? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Because of the flip chart. But we can the flip chart's standing up now. It, it, it was leaning against the window, that's why it fell over. So, heartfelt desire, and um, so I'm going to read you some of the sections from the, the sutra which, that describes these beings, and I've called this 
don't know if you noticed on the program, but yesterday morning was transcendent Dharma. Yesterday afternoon and evening was transcendent Buddha, and this morning is transcendent Sangha. And uh, so the, the 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 Sangha in the Pure Land are transcendent in that they're they're beings who are way up in that chart there from insight. Obviously, got deep deep insight. And so when we when we contemplate the members of that Sangha, we're, we're contemplating quite high ideals really and one of the things that I've noticed myself do and other people I know as well that when we start contemplating ideals and people we try to emulate and so on it's so easy to use that as a stick to beat yourself up with how many of you just uh, of, of that temperament you know as soon as you get an idea you think I'm not doing that no way can I do that what did I do this morning so just beating yourself so I want to make a heartfelt request of you that you don't do that and we, we take it more in the spirit of um, uh, wouldn't it be great if and um, it's interesting that the Buddha the only reason the Buddha gives the Shariputra for rebirth in the Pure Land is so, so that he could be with other beings of like mind people who are practicing the good it's a little bit like advertising this retreat isn't it Sangha retreat um, uh, or if you, you know at the end of this retreat you went home and they said well, what is it like and you didn't talk about the, the countryside and the wonderful weather and the food and the music perhaps if you like the music but you talked about the fact that you were with the Sangha how brilliant that was so uh, it's another way of understanding the spiritual life isn't it you, you take your focus away from the ideal that you're moving towards and you look around at the people you're moving towards that ideal with and you rejoice in that. So I want us more to sort of, when, when I'm talking about these fantastic <coughs> beings, see if we can, if we've experienced an echo of that in our own lives, in our own dealings with the Sangha, and rejoice in that. So a celebratory talk rather than, um, uh, what's it, uh, admonishment, yeah, <laughs> celebratory. <coughs> There's a story of, um, <coughs> there's this Sangha and uh, their main practice is to write down texts. So they're copying texts, so they've got these texts and they're copying them down. That's their main practice. And uh, they've got this abbot um, who's been celibate most of his adult life. And um, they're copying these texts. And one of the students, one of the disciples says, uh, can we have a look at the original of this? Because they they're, they're copying copies. Oh no, the originals are kept in a vault in the cellar. Uh, they're really, you know, they're so precious. We don't want anyone to. So, but they, this young disciple kept asking, "But we might be copying it wrong. You know, this copy might be wrong. Have you got the original? Can we have a look at the original?" And eventually, after some months, the abbot says, "Look, I'll go down, and I'll get the original." And they're they're just writing about. Um, celibacy, about the you know the importance of becoming celibate. So uh, he goes down to the vault to get the original text. Check. Anyway, he's down there for a long time, running away. Where is he? And after a while, they go. We don't go down and see what's happening. So they all go down into the vault, and uh, there's the abbot there, and he's banging his head against the wall. They <laughs> <laughs> go, master, master, what's going on, master? He says, celebrate. <laughs> the word is celebrating. <laughs> so, we should celebrate our lives and celebrate our Sangha and be happy and joyful. And, you know, when we come across these texts that tell us how we think we, we, th we take it that we should be behaving like that, I always think, when you're ready, all in good time. You know, as long as you're on the path, you'll get there eventually. So don't worry about it. You're on the path. And that's all that matters. And you've got friends who can help you. So it will all happen all in good time. So, um, actually the first thing I want to say is, uh, there's, a, there's just one line. Let's see if I can find it. I know it off by heart, but I'll just see if I can find it. It's a lovely line. Uh, very hard to find the line when <laughs> 30 people are looking at you. We're not looking at 
<laughs> no, I can't find it right now. But anyway, um, uh, the line is, they have found the narrow path. They have found the narrow path. This is really interesting. Um, so don't know if you noticed yesterday in the reading that, uh, but the Sukharati is surrounded by seven rows of railings, jeweled railings, and seven rows of palm trees. Do you remember that bit? Mm. So it's enclosed, but it's also said to be boundless, limitless, Amita. Isn't that brilliant? The land is limitless, boundless, but it's got these seven rows of railings around it. So how can that work? And um, I really like that because <coughs> what we're after, what we're aiming for is complete and utter freedom, isn't it? Complete boundlessness of mind and behaviour and emotions so that we're just pouring forth energy. Energy is completely unrestrained. That's what we're after. But to get there, we need to practice restraint. We need mm -hmm. to take care of the way we behave because we're not awakened yet. So if we're not careful, we're going to do things that are going to hurt ourselves and others so we need to take care and in that story yesterday the Shandao story of the man on the riverbank and, the, and the, you know the white path leading to the pure land did you notice how wide it was four or five inches wide that's all you've got this four or five inches white path leading to the pure land and on one side is the fire of hatred and on the other side is the water of greed. Yeah? And you have to travel in between the two. You're sort of tiptoeing along this path. And you have to take care. Because it's so easy to step off the path. And if you step off the path, you're into hatred or you're into greed. One of those. You'll be carried away. You'll either be burnt up with hatred or swept away by greed. So the white path is very, very narrow and you have to be very careful. And of course what we want these days, uh, Western Buddhists, they often want freedom before they've got there. They want freedom now before they're awakened. And so we want to be able to be spontaneous and do whatever. And you can of course, but what happens is you so easily step off into hatred or greed. So the white path is very, very narrow. So the beings in Sukhavati, even though they're in this boundless um, land, to get there, they trod the narrow path. Love that. So the whole thing about freedom is interesting because I don't know how much you know about the way art and music and the creative arts work, but you take... Uh, uh, a composer like Beta, uh, by Bach, let's say Bach. The rules of music in his day were very, very restrictive. You know, the harmonies that you could use and so on, and the key changes, very, very restrictive. You, you wouldn't go beyond those. And so you've got this very, very restrictive kind of, restricted kind of um, uh, uh, discipline. But when you listen to Bach, you don't hear the restrictive discipline. You hear the most amazing, joyful, free music, don't you? Just fantastic, just pours out of him. Bach's quite amazing, actually. He just wrote all his life, wrote, 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 wrote. And it's all an expression of faith. All of Bach's music is an expression of his deep faith. Quite wonderful. Very restricted rules, but freedom within that. So you get this sense of freedom within restriction, freedom within discipline. You really see that with jazz, don't you? That jazz players, really good jazz players, they spent so many years learning their craft, learning how to play the instrument, learning the scales, playing scales every day, you know, just, just on and on and on, just learning all the keys, what key went to that, and so on. But when then when they play, when they get to the improvised part of it, they're just complete and utter freedom. So freedom within restriction. It's a very interesting uh, concept, I think. Okay, so all this uh, comes from the longer Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra.
which bits to read you. In this Buddha field, living beings have no idea of property. No idea of property. They just haven't even got the concept. They just, just doesn't compute for them at all. No idea of property. So property less, owner less. They don't own anything. Nothing is theirs. I'm reminded of uh, one of the epithets of the Buddha, the man of naught, the man of nothing, the man who has absolutely nothing. And the liberation involved in that. So immediately we're thinking, oh, I own things. What about my house and the things that I own? I'm really attached to them. Of course, we are. So the text isn't saying you should get rid of all that. There's another way. And I'll come to the, to the, the, the resolution of that towards the end of this talk. Um, but right now, I just want to stay with this idea of the living beings have no idea of property. A bit later on, it says they have no idea of what belongs to self, no idea of mine. That's the liberation. It's, it's not that they have a self and they're trying not to own things. They don't own things because they don't even own themselves. They don't even know that a self exists. Can you imagine that? They just don't have that kind of conception. The conception of self in Sukhavati just doesn't exist. No idea of property, no idea of self, no idea of ownership. And what does that lead to? No conflict, no dispute, no contradiction. A lot of our conflicts, con uh, conflicts and disputes come from ownership, don't they? That's mine. No, it's mine. No, I left it there. No, it's not. It's yours. When you think of what's going on in the world, the terrible things that happen in the world at the moment, Israel and the Gaza Strip, this is our land, no, it's my land. Um, Syria, uh, various parts of Africa, Ukraine and Russia. It's all about property, isn't it? It's all about ownership. This is mine. No, it's not. It's, your, it's not yours. So this ownership often, not invariably, but often leads to dispute, conflict, contradiction. So uh, one of the things that we can do within the Sangha, one of the things that we can celebrate is we can at least get together sometimes and nobody owns anything. Like on this retreat, nothing of this is ours actually. It's somebody else's. We're just here for a short while. And it's so great, isn't it? Um, nobody's got their own house that they go to. No one's got their own stuff. Yeah, well, only a tiny little bit of stuff. Uh, it's not even worth having, is it, the stuff we bought? You, if it was stolen, you wouldn't really mind. Oh, I'll go and buy some more stuff. <laughs> so you don't really mind. So we're all here, ownerless in a way, aren't we? we, we don't, you don't really own anything here. We, and we're just living here quite happily. Yeah? In a way, we're in a pure land because there's no idea of ownership here. It's not ours. It belongs to somebody else. How liberating is that? <coughs> and those walking through, walking about that Buddha field, feel neither dis desire nor disgust. They neither want anything nor do they push anything away. Everything is just as it is and it's fine. Everything is just fine as it is. When they undertake an activity, they are completely free of ulterior motives. <coughs> They do not undertake an activity with an ulterior motive, and at no time do they even think of ulterior motives. I looked up ulterior on, in a dictionary the other day, and it just means secret, secret motives. Nobody's got any secret motives for doing anything. That is unusual in society. Uh, I was at some training event recently, a breathworks training event, and we were doing some teaching, and we got people to work in twos and threes do some teaching and uh, one of them said to me afterwards that was remarkable I've never worked in a team where I just completely trusted everybody you know, they, you know there's always at work there's always you don't quite know what's going on you know somebody's doing something because of something else and you don't know that but you only find out later so ulterior motives are destructive of human relationships I was thinking as we go through this um, um, you know, because I watch the news and it, God, it's terrible, isn't it? A lot of the news. And I was thinking, this 
text, when it, when it describes uh, the ideal Sangha, the transcendent Sangha, this is the opposite of everything bad that's going on in the world. This is actually what everybody wants. The way these beings live with each other is what everybody actually wants. Because everyone wants to be happy. Everyone wants to be in harmony with other living beings. And that's one of the great sources of happiness, isn't it? That just the harmony that exists. This is what everyone wants. And that's why uh, in this text you get the Amita Sangha. So Amitabha means boundless, measureless, infinite, limitless light. The Sangha is boundless here. It's limitless. Let's see if I can just find that bit. It's really... Um, Mm -hmm. Is that naive idealism? Everybody wants what that book. Whereas lots of people want greed, more money, bigger car. Uh, well, that's a good point, and um, people do want that. But um, in my view, I mean, they wouldn't agree with me here. But in my view, what they're after is happiness, and they think they'll get it by money, yeah. car, yeah. etc. But when they get that money and that car, it's never quite up to it. It never gives them the happiness they're after. So everyone's after the same thing, but we're just going about it in very deluded kind of ways. The living beings... Uh, oh, I uh, might not be able to find it. Never mind. Oh, no. Amita, Amita Buddha's assembly. The assembly of disciples is measureless so that it is not easy to grasp its measure, no matter how one thinks of the assembly. When one thinks of it as composed of so many millions of disciples, so many hundreds of millions of disciples, so many thousands of millions of disciples, it goes on like that. <laughs> it mentions trillions, quadrillions, quintillions. And hundreds of quintillions of disciples. So a measureless. So it's as if the text wants everyone to experience this yeah this the beauty of um the pure land and sangha but naguna how would we cope with then my child that would it's the only thing i find difficult my child mm. uh well the the buddha talks about this doesn't he in the metta sutta he talks about what 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 we're trying to do as disciples of the Buddha is love everyone as if oh, they were your child, your only <laughs> child. So when I had a child, uh, my daughter, so easy to love her. Yeah. My goodness, it was so easy. And then I did the metabarth and I think, God, this is hard work. <laughs> so easy to love my daughter and so difficult to love other people. But what I thought, just imagine if I could love everyone as much as I love my daughter. Mm. How great would that be? I've forgotten about that. Yeah, it'd be fantastic. So instead of thinking, oh, that's it's great, love your child, but then see if you can widen that. The whole idea of widening your love to include everyone as if they were your child. I'd be enlightened. Yeah, you would be. You'd be <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so lovely and pure know that everybody else loves your daughter like you did. Yeah. 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 Everybody else's That's right. Yeah. yeah, so in a way, the pure land, Sangha, transcendent Sangha, is just love going ev in every direction. Mm -hmm. It's a kind yeah. of mesh, a network of just love going in every direction. Like inhibits love, isn't it? But then you wouldn't, you wouldn't feel your child is second because you... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten yeah. about that reading. I read that. Oh. <laughs> okay. So, walking about, feeling neither desire nor disgust. We've done that, haven't we? We're on about her ulterior motives, aren't they? So, no ulterior motives. So, openness. This is who I am. I'm not hiding anything from you. This is who I am. This is what I want. And uh, so we're all completely open with each other. Just imagine what that would be like. The, you know, the, the beauty of that. Uh, their thoughts are impartial. Yeah, love for everyone. Benevolent, friendly, <coughs> undisturbed, imperturbable. 
just imagine what that would be like to have that kind of frame of mind they have obtained a presence of mind that preserves their thoughts their discernment their wisdom makes them equal to the ocean their presence of mind equal to Mount Sumeru Mount Sumeru is this massive great mountain in the middle of, um, of the world they are rich in numberless virtues they find their pleasure in the music of the seven aspects of awakening they are devoted to the song of the Buddhas it's wonderful isn't it you get this you get you know these sort of like admonishments and then you get this music of awakening and the song of the Buddhas threaded into it the beauty their thoughts are tamed their thoughts are calm they are in possession of the knowledge that all things are unattainable the knowledge that all things are unattainable ultimately nothing is attainable nothing is ownable ultimately you can't really own anything I mean when you own something you only, you've only got it for a short while haven't you yeah, how long can you own that for really how long do you live at some point you've got to let it go you just, you just got it for the time being you can't own it forever so ultimately everything is unattainable <coughs> and a bit later on sorry hmm? um, it, you having said that just reminds me of a, a, a line from the um, Heart Sutra uh, which says yeah. no attainment and no non-attainment yeah no attainment and no non-attainment yeah and the Bodhisattva holding on to nothing whatsoever yep. yeah holding nothing yeah. Yeah. how do you get no non-attainment no non-attainment yeah what, what is that what is that yeah no okay, non-attainment no oh that, that's another tradition I'm a pure land person but, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but just talking about you were talking about the mudra yesterday there are very very few mudras with a closed hand very very few most of them have an open hand yeah so it's the open-handedness of the Dharma, isn't it? It's, you know, uh, fearlessness, giving, uh, teaching the Dharma, they're all open-handed. So it's like that's the, the inner gesture is, the mudra is an outward mud, uh, gesture of an inner um, attitude of openness. Openness. We'll come back onto that in a moment, this idea of openness. But I've just talked about all things are unattainable. A bit later on, their field of knowledge and action is the ungraspable. Their field of knowledge and action is the ungraspable. What we're trying to do as Buddhists is we're trying to grasp the ungraspable. We're trying to understand that which ultimately does not have a conceptual understanding to it. We're trying to we're trying to live with and be with that which cannot be had they possess nothing free from grasping and are perfectly liberated those two go together don't they they possess nothing free from grasping and therefore perfectly liberated the liberation of not having anything there's that line isn't there originally by Chris Christopherson <laughs> often misattributed to Janis Joplin uh, um, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose sometimes nothing left to do freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose yeah so you know these beings they have nothing they don't even have the idea of having anything so complete and utter liberation they are perfectly liberated spotless they are firmly established in the limitless sphere of the psychic powers yet they remain without roots their minds are detached they are not downcast interesting those two in the same sentence their minds are detached and that doesn't sound great does it sounds a bit raw, but they are not down cast. You know, they're happy. Mm. 
coming on to that. <laughs> We're coming on to that. You're absolutely right. Yeah, that's why they have nothing. They've got everything. Mm. That's a bit perfection of wisdom issue, isn't it? Um, single-mindedly absorbed in the knowledge of the most profound truths, they do not become despondent. They have ascended to the gate of the knowledge of Buddhas, so difficult to comprehend. They have found the narrow path. I found it. They have found the narrow path. That's lovely, isn't it? They have ascended to the gate of the knowledge of Buddhas, so difficult to comprehend. They have found the narrow path. They are free from doubt, having crossed beyond uncertainty. Their knowledge does not depend on others. Their knowledge does not depend on others. That's why in the Pure Land Amitabha doesn't teach. They don't depend on him for their knowledge. They've understood it, they've taken it on, they've assimilated it into their being. So they're very, very close to enlightenment, these beings. They're, they're only one birth away from enlightenment, so they're well, well advanced. Their knowledge, therefore, does not depend on others, it depends on them. They are like the earth because they bear patiently both the good and the evil in the deeds of all beings. They bear both. They're like the earth. They're like the earth because they bear patiently both the good and the evil in the deeds of all beings. So the earth just holds everything. Doesn't make choices and say, no, I'm not going to hold you, you go holds absolutely everything. So bodhisattvas, they hold whatever people throw at them. Yeah. That's a difficult thing to do. And it goes through all the five, all the uh, six um, elements. <coughs> they are like water, they are like fire, they are like the wind, they are like empty space. Oh, that's a nice one. They are like empty space because they pervade all things, yet nowhere take hold of anything. Like elephants, they remain perfectly composed and collected, undistracted, their senses never dull. They are skillful in making decisions. It's an unusual one, isn't it? <laughs> they are skillful in making decisions. <coughs> they are full of patience and tenderness. Tenderness. They are free from envy because they do not crave the success that others enjoy. Mm. They just don't mind. People are successful, they rejoice in that success. We rejoice in other people's success. We don't crave after their success. So envy, we just don't have it. Envy is such a difficult emotion, isn't it? Mm. Oh, it's such a painful emotion. And there's no envy. Imagine the Sangha, no envy whatsoever, just rejoicing in all the other members of the Sangha, rejoicing all their great qualities and their successes and so on, and just feeling really happy for them. What a lovable being you would be if you could do that. You know, when everyone is, oh, fantastic, I'm so pleased for you, you know, no, sen no sense of, oh, I can't <laughs> that'd be great. How happy you would be and how loved you would be if you could just rejoice in everybody's success. How wonderful that would be. They are confident in discussions about the Dharma, probably because they know it. But also because I think you can be confident in discussions about the Dharma because it will, that's the thing about when you're, when you're quite an experienced teacher and you're teaching beginners and they throw all sorts of things at you, don't they? All sorts of problems and so on. Well, you know, you say everything's impermanent and they say uh, impermanence is not, imp uh, permanence isn't impermanent. What about impermanence? Impermanence. Impermanence <laughs> is permanent. Uh, we've got you there. So they do that, don't they? They try to trip you up and get you. And, but when you've been around for a while, you realise it's fine. Yeah. There's, there's no need to be defensive. You say, oh, you're right, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Impermanence is permanent, isn't it? So you've got one there. Great. Okay, shall we move on? <laughs> 
so you can feel perfectly confident because the Dharma is okay, it works. Yeah. You know it works, no matter what people throw at you. Uh, what else is there? They are never sated in their quest for Dharma. Never sated in their quest for Dharma. They are like emerald by virtue of their moral habits. They are dual minds by virtue of their learning. They are sweet-voiced because they have a voice like the great drum of Dharma. Striking the great kettle drum of Dharma. Blowing the great trumpet shell of Dharma. Raising the great banner of Dharma. Phew. Lighting the great torch of Dharma. Amazing. They are free of animosity. They have put hardness of heart to rest. Fancy doing that. Putting hardness of heart to rest. Put it to rest. You don't need it. Free of animosity. Tender hearted. Imagine doing that. Sangha, I think, is a practice ground for society, isn't it? That. Yeah. What we're not trying to keep it all to ourselves. We come together so that we can practice putting hardness of heart to rest and being tender-hearted because we know we can trust each other. So we can do that here and then we get a sense of that, we get a taste and then we try to spread it around to others. And they notice, people notice. They really do notice when you act differently. It makes such a difference. What we're trying to do is not create Sangha which is cut off from others. I used to live in an area where it was all Hasidic Jews, so you get the men with their black suits and their hats and their ringlets, and you get the women all in black. And you know a Jew, as soon as you walk into that area, you can see them, because they've got their, as it were, their uniform on. Butted right next on to a Middle Eastern area, and you've got all the Muslims there with their Muslim clothes on. And they're all separate. And I'm really glad that we Buddhists don't have a uniform, actually that we're just out there in the world because it tends to separate uh, the great the great um, Wilfred Campbell Smith said faith unites people belief um, uh, divides divides because beliefs are different but we we all share Buddhists Muslims Christians whatever we all share faith that feeling that there's something other than this. There's something fantastic about life, if we could just get it. We all share that, but we all have different beliefs about how to go about doing that. Mm. They have put hardness of heart to rest. They are pure. They are not greedy. They delight in sharing. They delight in sharing. They are generous, open-handed, is that open-handedness again. They delight in distributing gifts. They are not niggardly in giving both material gifts and the gift of the Dharma. What was that word? Niggardly. Niggardly. It's an old word, isn't it? You get it in Dickens novels. Sort of like, this is mine. That's niggardly. <laughs> they are dispassionate and firm, energetic and responsible resolute and modest. Without peers they are free. They are free. Possessing full understanding. They are gentle, pleasant to, to live with. This is why we join the order actually. Yeah. This is why we join the order. Because this is what we want. We want to live like this with others in this kind of way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, a bit of a... Yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Text is wrong there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it means without comparison. Could do. Could do, yeah. 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 Oh, maybe. Yeah. They don't. Do, oh, yeah. They don't think in terms of. Yeah. That's right. There's the Buddha's teaching, isn't there, about um, 
don't think of yourself as superior, yeah. inferior, or equal. Yeah, yeah. okay, that's good. Or peers of the realm. Peers. Yeah, there's no self, so they say, or peers of the realm. Peers of the realm. Peer must have some other meaning as well. Peers of the realm, like higher up beings. Oh, peers. maybe. I don't know what that means. Yeah. We don't really know, do we? <laughs> <laughs> text might be wrong. But it is a level thing, though, isn't it? Peers is a thing about somebody on your level. That's so strange. then meaning you wouldn't have someone on your level because you don't have a level. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. If you go to court, uh, the jury is made up of your peers. Yeah. Mm. Let's leave peers behind, can we? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we're still on peers. <laughs> Let's move on. Free from craving sensual pleasure, free from attachment and repulsion, they are pure, they are free from grief, they are stainless, free from the triple stain of hatred, passion and delusion. This is what we're aiming for, isn't it? The freedom from all that stuff. Okay, so I want to finish with, um, because it's a Pure Land text and because the Pure Land texts really are really great when it comes to their imagery. Uh, they are made, they are the, everyone there is the colour of gold. They are the colour of gold. Everyone is the colour of gold. Gold, in ancient societies, gold was the most precious metal. Even in our society, you get these phrases, don't you? She's been as good as gold all yeah. day. Yeah. He's worth his weight in gold, that man. Yeah. So, so we go right gold dust. Yeah, we are. Yeah. So we go right back to the ancient idea of gold being the most precious metal, but also considered the most beautiful, the most beautiful metal because it's shiny but it's soft. That's soft shininess. Gold is a wonderful. Hmm? It doesn't tarnish. It doesn't tarnish exactly. It doesn't tarnish. So gold is the colour of insight and beyond. So uh, I know we had this wonderful talk yesterday about Amitabha, but all Buddhas in the sutras are golden. Even Amitabha in the sutra is a golden Buddha. So all Buddhas are golden because they are the most precious thing in the whole universe. So when it says that the beings in the Pure Land are gold, what it means is that they have taken in, they've taken in what the Buddha has got. Yeah, so they're completely awake. You could say gold is the colour of awakening. And that's why they don't need anything, going back to your point. Yeah. They've got nothing because they've got everything. Because you can try to announce things and it's hard work because you haven't worked on the inner quite enough yet. Yeah. The only way you can have nothing happily is when you've got everything inside. Yeah. When you are so abundant that you don't really need anything from out there to feel to complete you. You don't need to fill yourself up with anything because you are completely full. You are full of these wonderful qualities, you are full of awakening and you are now abundant and stuff is pouring out of you. That's what transcendent Sangha is actually, where nobody needs anything from anybody else and everyone's giving because they don't need anything. It's not a chore, it's not difficult to announce when you've got that. So absolutely rich, wealthy, beyond your our imaginings. Yeah. And the final thing that I want to talk about is the Tree of Awakening. I meant to finish my talk yesterday with the Tree of Awakening, I forgot. But it's okay because it works with this talk as well. The tree of awakening, the Bodhi tree. Yeah. So you know you've got the Bodhi tree, and um, uh, the tree that the Buddha gained enlightenment under. And of course, that now is a great symbol, isn't it? The Bodhi tree. There's this place in India, the Mahabodhi temple. And it's got what's su supposed to be, you know, the Bodhi tree there, and it's a great object of worship for people. Now, the Bodhi tree and Bodhi translates it as the tree of awakening which I really like. It is if I can find it now. Tree of awakening is 
is 1600 yojanas high. <laughs> now, a yojana you know is an uncertain length, but if it were nine miles, I think that makes it 14,400 miles high. Yeah? Do you know how big the Earth is? That's 3,000 miles radius. Yeah. So it's big. <laughs> you know that tree just out there, that wonderful big tree? It's a lot bigger than that. <laughs> so it's really, really huge. Um, so it's 1,600 Yojana leagues high. And it's... Oh, I think this is a different translation because it's, it's got the dimension of it. It's absolutely massive. What does it mean? It's absolutely huge. Bigger than the world, a lot bigger than the Earth is. So big that if you were standing there, you wouldn't even realise it's a tree so big it is. And its branches, the, the, one of the reasons it's worshipped in India is because it sheltered the Buddha from the heat of the day and the, the rain in the rainy season. He could just sit under there and get on with his spiritual life, so it sheltered him. So the, the branches, the boughs, they shelter. So can you imagine this massive tree sheltering untold millions of beings, just sheltering under its beneficent boughs and branches? Fantastic um, image. Not only that, Oh yeah, there we are, it's branches and leaves and blossoms hang down, spreading for 800 leagues. The roots grow out 500 leagues, leaves is virgin. It is forever in leaf, forever in bloom, forever with fruit. Yeah, This is not a static image, I would say, it's a moving image. So it's always new leaves coming, always flowers blooming, always fruit just coming to perfection, always, always, always never dropping its fruit. N the leaves never drop. It never decays, never dies. So it's completely, always, abundantly, perpetually creative. So again, it's from inside onwards, which never falls back. This is a symbol of irreversibility. And when you see that tree, you become irreversible from enlightenment. So complete and utter perpetual creativity. Now this is the bit now that's to do with the Sangha. It is adorned. It is adorned with many beautiful ornaments filled with gems and jewels that have the moon's sheen made beautiful by gems and jewels comparable to those worn by Indra etc etc you heard me yesterday didn't you talking about this so it's made beautiful it's decorated at the request of living beings according to their disposition so how did those jewels and bells and so on get on that tree the beings put them on that tree yeah they're not an attribute of the tree they're attributes of the sangha all these jewels have been put there they were offered by the Sangha. Now there's another bit in the text that talks about the merits. You know about merit? That as you practice skillful action you're gaining merit and then you can transfer that merit. Yeah, You can transfer that merit to another person if you want. You say may you have my merit. Yeah? You have this idea of transferring your merit to another. In traditional uh, Buddhist countries when someone's ill or when someone's died you transfer your merit to them either so they get better or so they have a good rebirth so you transfer your merit to them it's a very generous thing to do so um, in the pure land the merit that, that the beings have in the pure land is expressed in terms of jewels and precious metals and bells and ornaments and music and flowers. Flowers come out of their hands. So all the time their merit is being expressed in these ways. So what does the ornaments of the tree symbolize? It symbolizes transference of merits. The ornaments of the tree are our transference of merits to our future enlightenment. Yeah. May the merit gained in my acting thus go to the alleviation of the suffering of all beings. So the tree 
is made beautiful by the Sangha. So the Dharma, yeah, the whole tradition, the, the, all the traditions of the Dharma are made beautiful by the people of the tradition. We beautify the Dharma, we beautify the tree of enlightenment by our own actions. Yeah? Now, Jan Natia, a great scholar, Jan Natia, she writes about the difference between transference of merits and transformation of merits. It's a very interesting distinction. Transference of merits happens on its own level. So I transfer my merits to you, maybe may you be happy and well and so on. Transformation of merits is when you transfer your merits to enlightenment. And in doing that they're transformed into something much greater. So this is what the Sangha does. The Sangha makes beautiful everything around them. That's why beauty is such an important aspect of these texts. But also, in a way, these texts, they're describing the, be the, the spiritual life in terms of beauty. Yeah. So the merits that you gain are expressed in beauty, expressed in jewels and flowers and necklaces and bells and beautiful music. So the way our merits are expressed, we're beautifying our sangha, our movement, but we're also in doing that, making the world a bit more beautiful. Just think about the Manchester Buddhist Centre, right in the middle of town, you know, and how beautiful that is. And what a fantastic thing it, ha it is to have it right in the centre of town like that. How wonderful. So this is what we're doing, isn't it? We are making the world more beautiful through our practices of the Dharma, transferring, transferring our merit for the sake of all beings. May the merit gained in my acting thus go to the alleviation of the suffering of all beings. I don't know why. When the um, building was first purchased, there was no such thing as the Northern Quarter, was there? No. Yeah. That's grown up around it. It has. It has. Yeah. Yeah. It's an impure but a field. Really an impure but a field. Okay, time for tea. Thank you. Thank you very much.